0: Welcome to another episode of the Ducca Minerva podcast. Today, I am really happy to be joined by Liesel Hintz, Assistant Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies, and Sibel Okctai, Associate Professor and Chair of Political Science at the University of Illinois, Springfield, and non-resident Senior Fellow at the Chicago Council on global affairs. So thank you both very much for being with us today. I've asked you to be here to talk about uh, what seems to me to be a very extraordinary set of events over the last 72 hours or so. We have Finland and Sweden submitting their applications to join NATO breaking in the case of Sweden with hundreds of years of established neutrality in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we have equally strikingly, I think one of the major members of NATO, I mean, I guess all the members of NATO are major, but Turkey has the second largest military in NATO uh, coming out and either opposing or offering substantial resistance to Finnish and Swedish secession. And to my knowledge of the waves of expansion of NATO, this is uh, unprecedented. Greece picked a fight with Macedonia over their name, but uh, uh, that seemed to be uh, resolvable from the Greek standpoint. The Turks seem to be putting up a pretty strong position that they are highly resistant, if not outright opposed to this. So. I want to talk to both of you guys about this. So I wonder, Lisel, if you might get us started on some of the background here and flag up some issues that those of us uh, in the United States who aren't paying careful attention to Turkish politics or the Turkish place in NATO should be aware of.
1: Yeah, thanks Jared so much for for having me for having us i'm glad to be able to uh, speak with a wonderful colleague, fellow um, mm-hmm. to be able to talk about these issues. So I think you've rightly highlighted the historical gravity of the moment, um, and I think that a lot of international observers were surprised and shocked when Turkey kind of throws this curveball into what I think a lot of. NATO observers and NATO members thought was going to be a pretty quick uh, accession process. I think they thought that this was going to be done and dusted by the Madrid uh, meeting in June. Um, So there are a lot of, I would say, both domestic politics and foreign policy factors that are shaping Turkey's objection to this. I would also note that you know turkey's relationship with nato you're you're absolutely right i think to highlight turkey as a major uh partner and and in some cases a major source of tensions within nato um you know we've had turkish frustrations with seemingly being overlooked when the us is negotiating to remove the jupiter missiles from turkey during the cuban missile crisis you have the infamous Johnson letter in 1964, saying that the US won't support Turkey if it invades Cyprus. You have sanctions following the 1974 invasion of Cyprus. So you've had a bunch of tensions, Um, and 2003 Iraq war and, and lots of other sets of tensions. But on this specifically, I think that there is a buildup of resentment of some of those historical tensions. I think there's a frustration on Turks part that like the EU accession process um, in which say Croatia was allowed to join relatively quickly from the Turks perspective and they signed the Ankara agreement in what like 1966 or something and they're still not a member of the EU. So I think there's a frustration that there is sort of a double standard when it comes to some European members um, joining European alliances and, and European organizations and that Turkey is is subject to some, some of those double standards. but. You know, ostensibly, the the main objection that Turkey is making is that Finland and Sweden are, in the the Turks' words, supporters of terrorism. And so this should not be a case in which you can have members join a collective defense organization if they are supporting terrorism, and specifically if they're supporting a terrorist organization that is, from the perspective of the Turk side, carrying out attacks on Turkish soil. Or harming Turkish civilians and Turkish military forces. So that's the main objection that Turkey is raising, and we can get into the details of sort of why that's the case and why it's much more the case with Sweden. I think Finland kind of got caught in the <laughs> caught in the net of this. Um, but there's you know there's over hundred thousand Kurds in Sweden. The there have been meetings between uh, Syrian Kurdish groups and and the Swedish foreign minister. So those are those are the ostensible objections that Turkey's making. Um, they've made a number of demands, but, and I think we'll, we'll get into this, in addition to the, the specific demands that Turkey's highlighting, this is a political opportunity for Turkey to renegotiate issues, everything from the F-16, arms embargoes, lots and lots of different issues that we can get into. So I think this is a political opportunity for Turkey to renegotiate its position to demonstrate its role as a world power regional power to be reckoned with and it's also an opportunity for Erdogan to try to gain some concessions that can win him domestic points at home in the sort of run up to elections in 2023 where he's facing economic crisis and all kinds of other issues that are making this difficult for him so i think there are some there's some grievances that turkey is is expressing and then there's the political opportunity that this poses for turkey and the akp
2: Perhaps one of the the last episodes that I may add with respect to Turkey's uh, tensions with NATO was back in 2009. The most recent of of those tensions took place back when um, Anders Volk Rasmussen, the the former prime minister of Denmark, uh, was being considered for uh, NATO's new secretary general. And Turkey was pretty outspoken in its opposition to his candidacy and eventual appointment. The reason being, when he was a prime minister, when he was a prime minister of Denmark, he, um, according to the Turkish perspective, he wasn't uh, uh, strongly opposed to uh, the, the 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 cartoon controversy, and and he instead he really highlighted and and uh, prioritized uh, freedom of speech and considered this uh, the the prophet muhammad cartoon another illustration of freedom of speech in denmark and so to erdogan and his political party and his government this was a major uh, no-no and and that's why they were uh, outspokenly opposed to his candidacy and yet you know, as, as we know, he, he was ultimately appointed. So that may be something that we can talk about as far as how this particular episode is going to unfold in the next couple of weeks.
0: So there are three dynamics going on here. One is a domestic dynamic for Erdogan and the AKP. My understanding is that he's at one of his he's at probably his most vulnerable that he's been in years uh because the economy in turkey is not doing well inflation rates are high he has um from a macro macro macroeconomic standpoint anyway he has a very interesting theory of the relationship between uh central bank interest rates and inflation that is he thinks it goes the opposite way that most people do that is uh lower interest rates, reduce inflation, higher interest rates, uh, increase inflation. And as a result, he's put pressure on his, on central the central bank in Turkey to keep interest rates low and interest or inflation has kind of run away and that's had a whole series of impacts. So there's a domestic component here and I, I mean, maybe these will be the three buckets that we can use to structure our conversation. The domestic element, um, the, the inter-alliance element that you're pointing to with your comments, Sibel, uh, about Anders Foller Rasmussen uh, being appointed to Secretary General of NATO and, and uh, Liesel, the history of Turkey feeling slighted, overlooked within the alliance. And then there's the international, which is related to the intra-alliance, but but distinct in the sense that Turkey is trying to establish itself as a, Regional power uh, state that um, uh, other states need to pay attention to, not just within NATO, but in the kind of grand, larger European context. All right, so let's start with the domestic component. I mean, what does what does opposing Finnish and Swedish, and I guess maybe Lucelle, you 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 comment that, or you're, you're noting that Finland is sort of being. Um, painted by association that the Turks are really concerned with Sweden. So let's focus on, I guess, the Turkish concern with, or what is the, I, mean, I imagine the internal dynamics, domestic dynamics resolve, revolve around this, the, what's going on in Sweden in terms of the Kurdish population there. But what does is, what is Erdogan get domestically from this grandstanding uh, with respect to Swedish accession to NATO?
1: So I think there are political points that he can score by grandstanding, and then there are the political points that he can score if he can get concessions like lifting the arms embargo um, and get the F-16s from the U.S. um, that both from uh, an air defense standpoint, Turkey very much needs, but also for its domestic defense industry. Um, The development of which um, having this indigenous uh, defense industry has been a priority of Turkey since 1985, but something that the AKP has really pushed for. um, And to the point that the domestic defense industry um, and sort of the nationalism that can rally around that is a really important constituency when we're thinking about the run-up to elections in 2023. So in terms of just the grandstanding itself, Erdogan has a history of being a very powerful orator and of being able to position Turkey in these public fora as a power to be reckoned with, as standing, standing up in you know, a counter-hegemonic way, pushing back against what it sees as the this U.S. Western Europe dominated order. That it wants to overturn, and you saw this, with you know association with Israel. You saw this at the Davos 2009 World Economic Forum when Erdogan yells at Shimon Peres and and yells at him for killing Palestinians and stands up and storms off the stage and says Turkey is done with with Davos. We'll never be back. Um, and he scores lots and lots of points not only uh, within Turkey but sort of in the Arab street more broadly in supporting Palestinians and and in a lot of uh, supporters eyes finally standing up to what they saw as you know Israel's targeting of Palestinians. Um, that's just one example. He uses Turkey's position as host of Syrians called Syrian refugees, but technically they're they're under a, a temporary protection status. And obviously Turkey hosts more Syrians than any other country um, and has gotten money for the EU from the EU for doing so. But he will sort of point over and over to how despicably Syrians were treated by others and how well Turkey has treated Syrians. So there's a lot of sort of moral positioning in terms of, of Turkey's role in the world. And there's also a positioning of Turkey as, again, this country to be reckoned with. And so when Russia invades Ukraine and Turkey says, well, we need to maintain relationships with both Russia and Ukraine. This is pragmatic because they have very close ties with both the domestic defense production with Ukraine, energy, trade, tourism, airspace access in Syria, Syria all kinds of stuff with Russia, stuff we don't know uh, with Russia. Um, but it's also able to position Turkey as this, you know, regional mediator. Um, and the great thing about being a mediator is you can't take sides. So that's a, that's a great role for for Turkey to be playing there. So So there's, again, these points that can be scored when Erdogan can prove to his domestic public that Turkey has been overlooked, needs to be reckoned with, is this powerful emerging country. You know, he tried to make Turkey one of the top economies by top 10 economies by 2023, the centenary of the Republic. That's obviously not happening. But on some of these other issues, he can make the case that he has really brought Turkey to the world's eyes. Um, So that's where a lot of those political points can come from. Then there's the political points on the Kurdish issue. And then there's the negotiations to be had with the F-16s and arms embargo. But I don't know, Sibel, if you want to pick up on, on either of those.
2: Yeah, I want to bring some of this back back to the domestic arena because, I mean, I agree with everything Nisil just said. The reason why he's so desperate to, I think, make these kinds of what we call grandstanding toward NATO allies and and particularly towards Sweden and Finland is because he is very much hard pressed at home on the economic um, dimension, on the social dimension and on the political dimension. So the social dimension, Liesl already mentioned it about um, Turkey having the highest number of Syrian refugees in the world. And even though Turkey has an agreement with the European Union about keeping these refugees or, or Sort of temporary guests uh or you know protectees inside turkey it's, turkey is getting billions of euros in in response to that but the there is no infrastructure you know it's been almost 10 years since since the war began right so there is no infrastructure in turkey to handle nearly four uh, four million Syrians, let alone afghanis who 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 fleed right after the us left uh, Afghanistan. And so the social ramifications of of having that many refugees uh, and and maybe we can also sort of highlight the the racist undertones of that of that tension. So Turkish I should, maybe I should say like native Turkish or indigenous Turkish people are feeling more and more resentful towards these, you know, millions of, of people coming in from outside without, um, according to their view, without any vetting or, or um, any, again, any infrastructure to handle them or, or um, accommodate them. The social tensions around the the refugee crisis, Turkey's own refugee crisis, is giving the opposition a lot of ammunition, and and the conversations and the debates that we observe in Turkey in that sense is similar to some of the things that are happening right over at, at home in the U.S. Right about how the demographic composition of the society is changing, and that's an existential threat to who we are as a nation, who we are as a society, and so on and so forth, and so. All of that is giving Erdoğan a very hard time on the social dimension. That has political ramifications in terms of giving the opposition a realistic chance of defeating him in 2023. Um, not to mention, as, as, as you've already pointed out, Jared, about the long-standing economic woes of Turkey and the fact that Erdoğan is, is replacing central bank governors. And, and so all of that is, is making him very hard-pressed at home. And so this is one way in which he can rally the nation around the flag truly by arguing that these particular countries, um, these prospective NATO partners are harboring terrorists, keeping them, you know, giving them um, asylum, giving them Swedish citizenship, basically allowing the, the PKK and YPG, YPG is considered by Turkish government an offshoot of PKK in Syria, and so giving these groups room to exist and room to continue their political activities and, and so on and so forth. And so whenever he activates that kind of rhetoric, that overthrows all of the, the divisions inside Turkey's political uh, landscape as far as who the, who the opposition is, who the government is. Like they, they all come together like, like they've been partners all along. And so I think Erdoğan needs that. Uh, Erdogan needs to shift the narrative. It it has to distract the the the, the society away from all these social and political and economic uh, uh, tensions and and bring the the society around this idea that Sweden and Finland are harboring terrorists and and we need to you know going back to what Lisel said about you know we need to put Turkey on the map, demonstrate that this is a country that's not going to take that. That's not going to just go along with what the, what the other members say. And we're going to use our uh, veto power and, um, and establish our strategic autonomy in that sense.
0: It seems to me that this, there's a contrast here between Syria, the response, the NATO European American response to the crisis in Syria and the response to Ukraine, and they're obviously very different conflicts. But the response to Ukraine has been allowing Ukrainians to come into Europe, you know, and stay and work, uh, which in in a kind of an unprecedented move for the EU in in the millions, this the sort of welcoming accession of Finland and Sweden. So this idea of rallying around. European members who have security concerns, even though they're not directly affected by the invasion in any way. Whereas in Syria, it's obviously different conflicts. Syria doesn't have the same kind of linkages with Europe that Ukraine does. But Turkey, as a member of NATO, did take in all these uh, refugees, did end up as a combatant on the ground and in the air in Syria, for its own purposes and reasons. But Uh, Europe didn't, I mean, you point out, uh, Sabel, that Turkey is receiving financial resources for the Syrian refugees, but it was largely left on its own to sort of figure this out. And in fact, there there was an agreement between the EU and Turkey that Turkey would keep these refugees to keep them out of Europe. So whereas Europe welcomes in the Ukrainians and is able to distribute the burden across multiple states within the EU, Turkey was kind of left on its own to deal with these problems and in fact was used as a bulwark to keep the problems out of Europe. Does that have any kind of, is that playing into some of these tensions within Turkey? I
1: jump on that quickly. I think this builds into the theme that we've been talking about, about this sort of uh, need to take Turkey's security interests, security concerns seriously. And I'll, I'll shift from the refugee question and to, to border security. This plays into this, this idea that I think Turkey perceives that the international community didn't take as seriously as it should the Turkish need to secure its border with Syria, and that actually goes back to even you know in the I think it was in December 2012. So in 2012, as the you know Syrian civil war is getting going. There's a a Turkish jet, Turkey claims down by Syrian air forces. There are some ballistic missiles that land in Turkish territory. There's fear about chemical weapons. And so Turkey asks its NATO allies, uh, because Turkey have its own surface-to-air missile defense system, and so asks NATO allies to send Patriot batteries, and I think some Eurosoms as well, but definitely Patriots. So the Netherlands and the US um, and a number of countries do send those Patriot batteries. Turkey then kind of ramps up this need or this process to, again, develop its own domestic defense industry and and have its own missile batteries such that it doesn't have to rely on NATO allies. And it it goes through this crazy process of securing a, a Chinese bid. And then NATO allies remove their missile batteries in 2015, which is kind of the height of the crisis. So that was another case in which I think Turkey saw that it couldn't rely on its nato allies that it was frustrated that these missile these patriot batteries that had been there were were being removed at a time when it most needed to try to secure its its border although i would note that the us tried to engage turkey in the war in syria or in fighting isis i should say and turkey declined to join that war against isis initially uh, and that's why part of why the US ends up supporting the YPG, the Syrian People's Protection Units, uh, which becomes because the YPG is affiliated with the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party in Turkey, which is why Turkey has this, this immense animosity against the US and this frustration of how how do you arm a terrorist group to fight a terrorist group when the terrorist group you're arming is attacking a NATO ally. So I think all of that conflict that this all of the ways in which the Syrian conflict has spilled over into Turkey it has shaped these beliefs that in contrast to the way in which the US reacted to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And again, very different conflicts, very different dynamics. But you combine that to not taking Turkey's security seriously combined with not being willing to care for the Syrians in ways that would not have uh, sort of had Turkey have to host as many as it did. I think there really is this sense that the international community has not taken Turkey's security interests seriously. And so whether or not you agree with that, that's part of where some of this combativeness is coming from. And that combativeness, again, has domestic political gains to be made, um, especially when you are trying to rally the opposition. And exactly as Sibel said, some of the issues that can rally an opposition You know, if the AKP is now polling at like 30 something percent, uh, which is, you know, obviously a lot lower than it wants to be. Ways in which you can unite the opposition are anti-US, anti-Europe, anti-Kurdish, and then we haven't mentioned anti-Gulan. And one of the demands that Turkey has made is that Sweden and Finland, particularly Sweden, extradite some of the members of the Gulan community, whom Turkey blames for the 2016 coup. So those three rallying points. In, in my 2018 book, I have this argument called identity contestation inside out. And when you're not getting the gains that you want at the domestic playing field, you kind of take the fight outside to the foreign policy arena. And I think this is very much what the AKP is doing in the sense that it is showcasing this, this you know take Turkey's security concerns seriously framed in this anti-Western, anti-Kurdish expression that plays well to a lot of Turks back home who otherwise might have been frustrated with the AKP for a lot of reasons, including the economy. So it's one of those issues that that by kind of taking the fight to the foreign policy arena, using this political opportunity, Erdogan may be able to secure some of those votes back home.
0: Hmm. I wonder, I mean, some of this bleeds into the the intra-alliance issues. So I maybe I'll. You've raised the F-16s, which I am ashamed to say I'm not aware of that 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 issue. So I do want to follow up on that. But it it seems to me in your both what both of you are saying is there's this sense in Turkey that Turkey is an asterisk in NATO that NATO doesn't really pay that much attention to s- s- Turkish security concerns and. You know, from the standpoint of NATO as being a keep the Americans in, the Russians out and the Germans down, Turkey would be an asterisk, right? Turkey was part of the mission of of kind of European containment of Soviet influence during the 20th century. And that was okay with an Ataturkist-oriented Turkey that saw it as, saw itself as part of the european civilization or aspirationally part of the european civilization and so being a member of nato was just the dues that had to be paid to be part of that project but with the end of the cold war and the the mission drift of nato as becoming a alliance of democracies turkey still kind of squared with that in the sense that it was this democracy as Erdogan has grown in his power, become more authoritarian, and turned Turkey away from the Ataturkist project to a more, I'll let you describe what the the, the AKP uh, Erdogan project is, but it's clearly not Ataturkist, not Europe in its orientation, as you point out, Lisel. It's, you know, he rallies the forces by being anti-Europe, anti-American. There's a fundamental fissure here that, I'm not sure how NATO manages or resolves.
2: Yeah, maybe I can jump in on that. Uh, so I think the the hunch or the characterization is, is right in that Turkey up until the early 2000s, and I, w- I should say maybe even including the early 2000s, Continued to be very pro-European, pro-Western. It wanted to entrench itself in European institutions, Western institutions. It's always considered, and I, I I do think that you know deep down Turkey and the Turkish state and Turkish government continue to consider NATO as a cornerstone of Turkey's security. Although you know the ways in which it's um uh, it's weakening it sort of rhetorically is something that we should obviously be aware of and and we should probably argue that that kind of chipping away verbally will have material consequences. But, you know, having said all that, I think Turkey considers NATO to be its, its cornerstone uh, regardless. However, um, like I said, uh, you know, Turkey's pro-Western, pro-European stance continued into the early years of the AKP government uh, when it came to power in 2002. However, that kind of fallout began to sort of unfold around, I don't know, maybe 2004, five, six uh, onwards. And when Erdogan and the AKP more generally realized that the Western or pro-European stance isn't giving or, or returning them the gains that they expected then i think that's when the fallout began to speed up and and some of that goes back to what Liesl said about you know eu accession and having signed the ankara association agreement back in the 1960s i mean it's been what 60 years it's it, it's it's become a pipe dream for uh, for anyone interested in, in 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 arguing for that so This was about the same time that um, another character who is now in the opposition, Ahmet Davutoğlu, uh, began to exert his own influence and vision on on Turkish foreign policy. And and that was about the same time that we started seeing more and more this notion of neo-Ottomanism in foreign policy. Uh, which is capturing the the past of, of Turkish foreign policy or, or um, going back to its Ottoman past and how um, Turkey can leverage its Ottoman past in building this new kind of uh, relationship and regional influence around formerly Ottoman territories, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa. Some other uh, foreign policy scholars and, and Turkey experts reframe that into a, a notion called soft Euro um, Euroasianism, And so, you know, turning its face towards the Caucasus, former Soviet uh, republics of, of these Turkic origins, but also strengthening ties with, like I said, the, the countries in the Middle East and North Africa that kind of pivot away from sort of Western institutions, including the European Union, and to some extent, NATO is now becoming more and more apparent. And aligns nicely, I guess, with with Turkey's claims to um, claims against against Sweden. Turkey was interested in buying those Chinese-made uh, missiles and then ultimately purchased the Russian-made missiles and And so there is both a, a pivot in terms of vision, but also in terms of uh, in terms of behavior. And obviously this has implications for not just how Turkey sees NATO, but more importantly, how NATO sees Turkey, right? What NATO thinks about Turkey. And and maybe we can talk about how the US or or how decision makers in the United States uh, think about Turkey. And and perhaps that would be one way in which we can sort of talk about the F-16 deal or the prospective deal and and what that means for Turkey-US relations.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to pick up on that. SO EXACTLY AS SIBAS SAID, TURKEY ENDS UP PURCHASING A RUSSIAN MISSILE DEFENSE SYSTEM, um, THE S-400 MISSILE DEFENSE SYSTEM. SO AS I MENTIONED EARLIER, TURKEY HAD IDENTIFIED THE NEED TO PURCHASE uh, AN AIR DEFENSE SYSTEM considered the U.S. Patriots, considered the EUROSAM, considered the Chinese-made system, a Chinese-made system. I think in a lot of U.S. negotiators' eyes and in their own words, I think Jim Townsend and Rachel Elihus have a piece on this at More on the Rocks, saw Turkey's Chinese deal as a bargaining chip to try to get a better deal on the U.S. Patriots and specifically price-wise, but also because Turkey wanted to develop its domestic defense industry. Um, looking at technology transfer and co-production. And those were conditions that they weren't able to get from the United States. Apparently, the Chinese did offer that, but then it didn't look like that was coming through. But basically, under NATO pressure, Turkey ditches the Chinese deal in 2015. And perhaps it looks like they may go with the patriots. And then we have a series of incidents. In addition to the inability to get the uh, conditions on the patriots that Turkey wants, you have a series of incidents that really... Damages the relationship between US and Turkey and the trust between US and Turkey and a lot of that centers around the coup attempt in uh, on July fifteenth, two 2016 and as uh, some AKP members have expressed recently you can say that this is just instrumental cheap talk but. I think there is a deeply held belief amongst a lot of, of the AKP, amongst a lot of the Turkish public that the U.S. was somehow involved in the coup attempt. The fact that the U.S. has refused to extradite Fethullah Gülen, who is obviously the leader of the Gülen Movement, whom Turkey blames for, for the coup attempt, is a big part of that. The U.S. actions on the night of... or inaction on the night of the coup um, kind of delaying the response not immediately criticizing it the first phone call out of the one gets is from putin you see this almost really again there had been a lot of, of of issues over which the us and turkey had clashed and support for the syrian kurdish ypg was a fundamental part of that clash and and the breaking down of trust but that I think that was a transformative moment in a lot of senses. And I think that that what followed from the, the coup attempt and sort of Turkey's pivot to Russia in a sense, I think is kind of how we can understand how Turkey ends up with the, with the Russian S-400s. All of that is a, a long way of getting to the F-16 question. So short the short of it is the US is frustrated, NATO is frustrated that Turkey goes with the Russian system. It's incompatible uh, with NATO technology. It threatened to compromise intelligence on the F-35 air defense uh, joint strike fighter program. Um, and so in sort of a series of hesitating sanctions, and part of that had to do with the, the sort of bro-y romance between uh, President Trump and President Erdogan, and so Trump didn't apply some of the Katsa sanctions that uh, people, that observers thought that he should. Eventually, Turkey is kicked out of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program um, after it takes possession of the Russian S-400s. So the fact that it's kicked out of the program when it's already spent a heck of a lot of money on it, the fact that it was part of the production line, and so that would have been advantageous for its domestic defend- in- defense industry. It was also, I think, the hub for for maintenance. There was going to be a lot of things that were going to benefit the defense industry for Turkey being a part of that program. So being kicked out of it um, has all kinds of ramifications and just increases the tension and frustration between the U.S. and Turkey. And so what Turkey has recently been pursuing is to try to purchase a set of F-16s, I think about 40 F-16s, and then also like 80 modernization kits so that it can upgrade its existing F-16s. Uh, But Congress has to approve that. And Congress sentiment towards Turkey these days is pretty, pretty negative for a whole bunch of reasons. And so Turkey has been spending all kinds of money lobbying the US government, has tried to find all kinds of ways in which it can convince Congress to approve the F-16s because it can't back down from the S-400s, which uh, I can talk about that in a separate, uh, I got a whole paper on that, why it can't do that, and the domestic identity constraints as to why it can't do that with the fabulous David Banks at King's College. But the the push to try to get the F-16s is running up against a lot of hurdles. Um, And again, part of that is sort of the bad blood in Congress that has resulted from a lot of these uh, tensions, including the beating up of peaceful protesters on US soil when Erdogan's uh, security team took a a, a violent approach to uh, peaceful protesters at the Turkish ambassador's residence in what has become known as the Battle of Sheridan Circle. So lots of reasons for why um, Congress doesn't want to approve the F-16s, but Turkey is seeing this as an opportunity to lobby the U.S. and say, and there has been some movement, there have been some indications that maybe this is something that Congress can move on, and again, you know, this, this Sweden, Finland, NATO accession is a political opportunity structure that opened, as crass as it is, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is another political opportunity structure that opened for Turkey, while it was put in the difficult position of trying not to ruin either the Ukrainian or the Russian bilateral relationship. It, again, was able to kind of take that mediator or position itself as a mediator. I can't take sides and I'm a power to be reckoned with. So perhaps you should listen to some of my interests. So, again, there's that sense that these political opportunity structures are are being taken advantage of to try to uh, get some of those concessions Turkey's looking for.
0: This issue of the S-400, I think, is is indicative of this point that you raise, Sibel that. it's worth at least talking briefly about how the U.S. or the U.S. and NATO, the European members of NATO, the other European members of NATO view Turkey, because as I recall, the coverage in the United States when the S four hundred deal was finalized, and I recall the removal of Turkey from the F thirty five program, and the argument was that, as you as you rightly say, Lisa, that the the for the air defense system to work. It has to interface with the F-35, so there's an issue there. But in the event that those issues were overcome, that the necessary information exchange between the F-35 and the S-400 would be such that there was a huge intelligence liability in terms of Russia being able to gain access to in-depth knowledge of F-35 capabilities. So there were really good uh, technical and uh, intelligence reasons why, once Turkey made that decision to purchase the S-400, that they were going to get kicked out of this program. But there was also, I think, a sense, at least in the coverage here in the United States, and you two will correct me if I'm wrong here, that it was seen as Turkey drifting away from NATO, that the purchase of the S-400 was Turkey's very purposeful pursuit and purchase of a Russian anti-aircraft defense system Was symbolic. Symbolic, in addition to its military significance, it was it had greater significance for for symbolic reasons that Turkey was actually turning away from NATO, turning its back on NATO, and turning to. um, At that point, was very clear, you know, Putin was not going to be a partner for peace in Europe. Right, he was at the very least antagonistic to NATO, if not right, um, not outright aggressive towards NATO. So that turn was seen, I think, in, at least in the United States the U.S. media, as a betrayal of, Tur- of NATO by Turkey. And so you know, am I right about that from your reading? And, and, you know, what on the Turkey side drives its pursuit of this? Because this is—I mean, there are all these, te- these are grievances and tensions, but uh, Turkey seems to have gone out of its way to, with the S-400, to kind of poke NATO and the United States in particular in the eye and say, well, we don't need you guys after all, that sort of thing.
2: So Liesl has a whole project on that. So I'm going to turn to her, but let me offer my two cents on it. So I, I think your interpretation of it is, is absolutely right. Um, and ultimately, it led to the uh, uh, imposition of the cats of sanctions. So sanctions. Um, so it wasn't just about um how you know the the person on the street thought about this but it, it also became U.S. policy to to sanction Turkey for its purchase I think two things were happening at the time which has been characterizing Turkish foreign policy for probably a decade if not longer which is this idea that that Turkey has a legitimate right and has the ability also uh to um Established its own strategic autonomy, which in its mind, it means we can be a NATO member, but we can, or we should be allowed to do what we want, even though we are, even though we still have the willingness to stay in NATO. So, so, you know, Turkey wants to have its cake and eat it too, and, and not even gain any calories from, from, from said cake, right? <laughs> and so, so, um, So like it's trying to have it also in 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 like both ways always and and so i think i think that's the kind of uh uh foreign policy that erdogan pursues and continue and and continue will continue to want to pursue so the 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 s-400s and and you know this outright defiance of nato alliance by Mm -hmm. um, by purchasing that and and thereby you know, raising all these issues about about intelligence, about interoperability, uh, and and so on and so forth. All of that is, uh, I think, Turkey was well aware of all of these implications. But then, the idea of achieving and demonstrating this kind of autonomy in its foreign policy, both for domestic consumption and for international sort of assertion of its presence as a sort of a regional power, or power to be reckoned with i think that had priority in 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 turkey's so turkish government's um decision making calculus uh, but for the rest of that debate about s400s being a, a symbolic demonstration of turkey's assertions i'll, I'll turn to lisa
1: i appreciate that yeah so this is the the project that i mentioned briefly with david banks at King's college london this is a project that is basically trying to explain why turkey can't back down from the s-400s despite the sanctions despite the fact that it basically can't use them or i should say that it's not filling its its air defense gap this is basically a super costly paperweight um, as one of my as howard eisenstadt one of my uh, uh interviewees uh mentioned it one thing that i would note before getting to the symbolic politics element is exactly as you were noting jared kind of the the disbelief in Washington um, and the the sense that this was a a significant shift that was happening. I think this process was characterized by sort of a misunderstanding on both sides of the negotiating table. I don't think the U.S. took Turkey's claim that they were going to purchase the S-400s very seriously. And I don't think Turkey really thought that the U.S. would follow through with the sanctions that it did. And to be fair to Turkey's perspective, there was a lot of mixed messaging that was happening you know they were getting some messages about we're absolutely going to apply sanctions from you know from congressional delegations and some of these other diplomatic missions that were sent to turkey and then you know president trump would say no you know you're my friend and that's not going to happen so that was kind of undermining the us's attempt to try to to signal to turkey that this is a cost they're actually going to apply um but i think that you know turkey's Whether or not it was actually doing this, the perception in D.C. that Turkey was using the Chinese system back in 2013 to 2015 as a bargaining chip caused the U.S. delegation to think that Turkey was doing the same thing. And exactly as you say, Jared, the sense that it was so unthinkable and and such a huge drift if turkey were to go ahead with the s400s it just it was out of the realm of possibility and having observed some of those negotiations in dc this was my my takeaway that that the us didn't think that was was a possibility and thought this was a bluff and so it was it was really a you know a, a case of deterrence that that didn't go very well in terms of trying to deter turkey from the the s400 purchase and it was oh well you know, they they've signed the deal, but they haven't made the payment. Okay, well, they're not going to make the payment and then they make the payment. Oh, but they haven't taken possession. Okay, well, okay, well, now they've taken possession, right? It was this series of I can't believe this is actually happening. And now we're really trying credibly to signal that this is going to result in very, very costly sanctions. And yet they they go ahead with. So the question is, then, why does Turkey not back down from it despite these costly sanctions? And this is the project on on symbolic politics that that I've been really excited to work on with David Banks. And this is really getting at this sense that Turkey does, that the AKP did kind of symbolically deploy the S-400 as this representation of Turkey's independence and sovereignty and counter hegemonic pushback against the U.S. in particular. More broadly, the European and U.S. attempts to try to dictate what Turkey should do when it comes to its own security interests, but there was this THIS FRUSTRATION WITH THE U.S. SPECIFICALLY THAT GOES BACK TO THE RESENTMENT AROUND THE coup ATTEMPT AND THE REFUSAL TO EXTRADITE FATUL GILAN THAT I MENTIONED EARLIER. AND SO THE the RHETORIC SURROUNDING THE S-400 WAS THAT THIS IS A SYMBOL OF INDEPENDENCE, THIS IS A SYMBOL OF SOVEREIGNTY, NO ONE CAN TELL TURKEY WHAT TO DO and and that it wasn't you know a russian drift per se it was just turkey's choice and that the s 400 from their perspective made the most sense because they couldn't get the deal on the patriots that they wanted to and so how dare the u.s try to sanction us for for pursuing our security in our own ways so this narrative became so imbricated with identity issues that had to do with independence and sovereignty that, you know, play to a variety of Turkish nationalists, that nationalist constituencies, that the AKP wants to, you know, keep supportive of it or draw that support in the run up to elections, that it's now very difficult to back down once you have kind of you've you've deployed that symbol and then those constituencies start picking up on it and there's this symbolic amplification of this narrative of independence and sovereignty and know the US will never back down it will never bend its neck, it will never, you know, it will never bow to the US essentially such that if. The Turkish government now backed away from the S-400s, it has become prohibitively costly for it to do so, in a sense. That's the kind of symbolic amplification argument that my co-author and I make. But I I do think that your, your point is a good one in terms of this representing to international communities, you know, Maybe Turkey doesn't want it to be seen as a drift towards Russia, but it certainly seems to be be that case. I would say from the Turkish perspective, it's much more about trying to keep its options as open as possible and really have that independence. And and the identity part of that is very much this counter hegemonic pushback against the U.S. trying to dictate what Turkey should do.
0: Hmm. I mean, that's that's interesting in the intra alliance perspective. And both you and and Sibel Comments that you've both made about independence and autonomy, and Sibel, you you explicitly mentioned interoperability. I mean, that's interoperability is a keystone for for NATO, right? Not just doctrinal interoperability, but technological interoperability. There's a supreme Allied commander for transformation, which is all about ensuring interoperability across multiple levels of military operation. So Turkey wants to have it independent aspect to its security policy, and yet it is part of an organization which at its kind of heart on the military side is about interoperability and everybody working together and not really about independence. Is there a way Turkey thinks about squaring this, talks about squaring this circle, or are they just like, well, NATO can get get over it? I mean, I, I, this is very puzzling to me. I think this is somewhat unique in the history of NATO in terms of this willingness to walk away from the interoperability commitment.
2: I mean, yes and no, though, right? Because the S-400s are still deactive. And going back to what, what Howard Eisenstadt said, it's, it's a, it's a billion-dollar paperweight. So I think the fact that Turkey isn't activating them, isn't using them, isn't even threatening or uh mentioning about using them i think that that's a good enough given the circumstance given the policy corner that the country has put itself in i think that's a pretty good indication that turkey is backing down on that and and choosing to choosing to remain in in nato as far as
0: um you know not
2: raising any eyebrows about interoperability is concerned and so i think i think that the fact that it's it's inactive, and they have no intention of activating them anytime soon for for any reason, specifically, is I think a good enough um, indication of, of what Turkey has in mind. But that's the thing, right? Like it's, it looks like Turkey had like Turkish foreign policy has no direction or has no sort of grand strategy about how to how to deal with all of this, right? Why would you spend billions of dollars on a piece of equipment that you can't even use? And, and furthermore, that prevents you from acquiring further equipment that you want, right, like F-35s and F-16s and, and you know, anything sort of more going forward, whatever, whatever you might need in the future. And so... So I think that's puzzling, but at the same time, we opened up the, the conversation with these three categories or three bins, Jared, as you, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the domestic one, the inter-alliance relations and, and dynamics, and then the, the domestic and international. I think, especially in the last perhaps 10 years. The domestic and foreign has become so intertwined in Turkish foreign policy that I think it's very difficult to untangle them. And whatever happens, whatever steps that Turkey takes at the international level has domestic connotations or domestic implications and vice versa. And so I think it's it's very difficult to think about Turkish foreign policy in sort of IR realist sense where it's just about, you know, national interest and, and security and, and self-defense, it 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 also always always has some uh, implication and some relationship to what the government is thinking about to uh, to maintain its position to maintain its viability at the domestic level.
1: I think that's absolutely right. I think having written a book on the intersection of domestic and foreign policy, domestic politics and foreign policy in Turkey, I tend to see everything through a, a domestic politics lens. And obviously, Sibel, your own forthcoming book um, on coalitions and foreign policy is looking at the the domestic as well but you know I, I tweeted something yesterday about how this is kind of you know Turkey taking its, its domestic politics to the foreign policy arena and people kept coming back with these foreign policy issues well what about you know signaling to Russia is like yeah signaling to Russia but also energy <laughs> that Turkey needs and and look at you know inflation and energy prices right now and the need the extent to which Turkey is reliant on Russian energy, and tourists and exports and and the nuclear power station that Russia is is contributing to as well. So there's all of these domestic ramifications, exactly as Sibel is saying, to these foreign policy gambits. And that could be because we're looking at elections. And so a lot of us are focusing on the fact that the AKP isn't where it wants to be in the run-up to the elections, the fact that the economy is in crisis, partially, exactly as you highlighted at the beginning, Jared, because of are the ones unorthodox monetary policy, but also, as Sibel highlighted, structural reasons that have put the economy in in the place that it is. So it's tough not to focus on the domestic politics of it. And so maybe that's kind of the contribution that that Sibel and I can bring is that while we do have these three buckets, there's so much about identity politics, electoral politics, you know, jockeying amongst constituencies and stuff so, and so forth that are playing into what I think at the foreign policy level for observers looks really bizarre and baffling, but if you look at the internal politics and at least for me specifically the identity politics you get a much better sense of why Turkey is is acting the way that it is.
0: Sweden and Finland, I guess, ancillarily, how do they address Turkey's complaints, Erdogan's complaints? Um, Erdogan is positioning this, at least so far as I've seen, as not a negotiating tactic, but he's just not going to support. And so I presume the signals coming from, you know, NATO headquarters, as well as Americans and various European leaders is that actually, you know, this is actually a negotiating position and that the Turks can be moved. So how does Sweden and Finland address uh, Turkey's complaints? And on the flip side, and this, this part is prompted in, in part by your comments, Liesel, about, this, about the identity significance of the S-400. Assuming that Erdogan's position on this has is imbued with identity significance in, in Turkish domestic politics, how does Erdogan accept, or how does Erdogan shift his position to get himself out of that apparent rhetorical entrapment? And then the second question is, what is Turkey's long-term position in NATO? Uh, Sibel, you said that Turkey does see NATO as a cornerstone for its security, and you point to the fact that they haven't activated the S-400. It's under a dust blanket somewhere, not doing much. But it seems to me that there is this, there is a very, if not fundamental, very significant division between the United States and most of Europe on one hand, most of the European members of NATO on one hand, and then Turkey and this desire for independence and autonomy and the anti American, anti European discourses that you both have mentioned that Erdogan uses to to rally domestic political support, that seems kind of untenable in the long term. Like something's got to give, and I'm just curious what you guys think is going to give in that dynamic. I
1: might start with the first set of questions in terms of how, and again, I think it's we're dealing more with Sweden and, and Finland just kind of is, is caught up in this, but in terms of how they're responding to it. So Sweden, I think, was the second state to recognize the PKK as a terrorist organization. And so there is a distinction that the Swedish government, I think, is making between the PKK and some of the other organizations that it is meeting with, negotiating with, talking with. Um, and so forth, and so I think uh, that they have, and I'm not a, definitely not a Swedish foreign policy expert, but um, I think I saw the sort of stipulation that they would meet with the Syrian Democratic Council or or perhaps the Syrian Democratic Union Party, but not the YPG. So the political groups, but not the military forces, and so that seems to be a way in which they have tried to to separate those out. Um, Although, and and I think to their credit, they have, the Swedish government has been open in in acknowledging that Sweden has welcomed asylum seekers from Turkey, from leftists and Kurds uh, in the 80s and 90s, to more recently they they have hosted as well members of of the Gulen movement who fled political persecution in Turkey. Um, But there's also been this sense of support from members of the Kurdish movement or or the Kurdish community in Sweden for the current prime minister. And so she was elected with the support of, you know, a Kurdish member of parliament, and, and some of that seems to be predicated on some kind of relationship with uh, Syrian Kurdish political groups as well. So there's a there's a sort of explicit link between uh, the Swedish government and discussions with Syrian political groups. But again, they're they're being very careful to separate that out from um, from the PKK. And I think it's worth noting that you know the rhetoric that the Turkish government is using is is part of this dynamic that I call rhetorical vilification, which is a way of using a really broad brush to paint anyone who is associated with the Kurdish political movement as a terrorist. It's a rhetorical device that allows for the delegitimization and ultimately criminalization of oppositional Kurds. And that's something that Erdogan does at home. He does it in Syria and he's doing it in, in Sweden right now. Um, and so I think that's something that really needs to be made made very clear. In terms of how does Erdogan sell any potential or how does he, you know, if he gets nothing, say, you know, say he gets nothing um, or say he has to remove his veto uh, and doesn't get a lot of the concessions that he wants. I think that there are ways that he can spin this and, and the way in which he can do that has to do with the political economy of the media in Turkey, which is that The media stations are owned by holding companies that have gigantic holding companies that have construction interests and banking interests and and mining interests and all kinds of interests for which it is in their interest to not show any coverage that is anti AKP so while. There are formal tools of censorship and they can use insulting the president as a way to criminalize oppositional speech, so there are formal tools. There's also this informal political economy structure that means that like 90% of the media stations in Turkey are showing pro-government or at least not anti-government messaging. So he has that ability to sell and twist and spin anything that he can get from the international stage to the audience back home what that is going to be i don't know exactly as you said jared secretary blinken ned price others have continuously said we're optimistic about consensus so does that mean that this is kind of rhetorical speech at the diplomatic level to win points back home and the real audience is is the domestic audience and behind the scenes the delegations are using different language that's that's entirely plausible and and ir would give us lots of tools to analyze that with but in terms of what he walks away from this with we just don't know I just I just think that he will have the ability to spin it positively because of the way that the media is configured
2: I think he's gonna he's gonna get out of this with some concessions I don't know what types of concessions or how extensive they will be but I don't think he's gonna come back from this empty-handed and whatever concession he is able to reap he's gonna amplify that at home. To its its maximum possible extent, I acknowledge that Erdogan takes a much more hardline stance. Jared, as you as you said, like he goes no, and and the Swedish and and uh, Finnish delegations were planning to take a trip to Ankara to speak with him personally and to speak with his. Um, Uh, deputies and and he basically said well they shouldn't even bother making the the trip because my answers are no if there are two things that we know about Erdogan is one he he loves playing brickmanship and two he loves playing good cop bad cop and and in this particular episode he is the bad cop he's oftentimes the bad cop but then his spokesperson Ibrahim Kalin is the good cop right so so if you like if you open different tabs from Reuters, one next to another, Erdogan says no. We are firmly opposed. Ibrahim Cullen says we are not closing the door. Uh, we are open to discussing the conditions under which we would, you know, lift the the veto. And so, so I think Turkey is trying to play both of those sides. And obviously, you know, what Cullen says. And going back to the media landscape in Turkey, you know, Erdogan's message will be much more amplified at home. Precisely because you know, he's the president, and and he he has a spotlight, and you know he's catering this to the domestic audience, and then and then the real diplomacy, I think, the more even-handed, or you know we're trying to find all these different possibilities for negotiation and and identifying the kinds of concessions that we can take. That's that's being run by uh, by Cullen and, and other, uh, other diplomats and, and deputies. So, uh, so I think Turkey is trying to do both things at once. First, you know, positioning itself for, for domestic consumption and then, and then for the international. Mm-hmm. So about that second question about whether Turkey's position is tenable in NATO, considering all of these, these dynamics. One thing I said was about how much of this is just talk. Much of this is just sort of rhetoric. And in that sense, it doesn't have a lot of direct repercussion. But over time, when it accumulates, uh, and, and when it's coupled with these more tangible behaviors, such as, you know, the purchasing of the, the S-400s, then it starts to sort of carve uh, the, the relationship from from underneath. And so I think that is absolutely right that all of these steps have been weakening Turkey's position in NATO, Turkey's perception among among NATO partners, in particular the United States, and of course Congress, which holds the purse strings when it comes to these defense deals. At the same time, though, I really think at the end of the day, Turkey is doing just enough to exert that kind of strong statehood for, for NATO and for domestic consumption, but stopping at the very edge of that cliff and not taking the jump, which would be either severing ties or taking the steps that would ultimately push the rest of the alliance to say, okay, you're out. And so I think Turkey is sort of walking that tight rope. I don't know to what extent all of this is um, pegged to AKP and Erdogan more specifically, leaders have an expiration date, right? Whether it's, it's a natural expiration date or, or through elections, but he's not going to be around forever. And so I do believe that even though the anti-Americanism and anti-Westernism has taken, has become a lot more entrenched in Turkey than, than it used to be in the past. I don't think this is a permanent state of affairs i think the the next turkish government or the one after it or what have you can turn things around and take really concrete steps to to mend the relations into toward the positive direction but even if not i don't think erdogan has in mind uh i i don't think a complete withdrawal from nato is is what erdogan has in mind uh, so um so much of this is pretty much hard talk and and to get whatever concessions that he can take.
0: Thank you both. I found this really helpful in thinking about the events that are going on right now and Turkey's contentious role. So I really appreciate you taking the time to help me understand, hopefully help members of our audience understand.
1: Thanks for, Thank having, you us. for having us.
0: I am off. All right, let's try again.
2: The Duck of Minerva.